I want a bit of the quiet life. I want a bit of shelf indulgence. If there is reading, give me all of it. Join the show on the Microbrew Radio. Listen to Jim, Wendy, and Emily. Join in the conversation. I want to hear it. I want to read it. I want a bit of self-indulgence. I want Hello it. and welcome to this week's episode of Shelf Indulgence, your microbrew radio dosage of everything bookish. Now, it's me, Jim. I'm joined as usual by Wendy. And this evening, today, um, we are going to be discussing the book Lessons in Chemistry. But before we do, how are you, Wendy? How's your week been? I'm great. I've had a reasonable week as well. Um, Managed to get quite a bit of reading done. So, yeah, the world's good. Excellent. Right then. Shall we, before we get into Lessons in Chemistry, uh, which is a book that I know we're both greatly looking forward to, so I'm looking forward to the conversation, shall we wander over to Poetry Corner? Oh, yeah, that sounds good. Would you like to go first, Wendy? I will, yes, I will. Um, I want to read a poem by um, Mark Coplin, um, and it's a poem about spring cleaning. The, the spring... <laughs> I'll try that again with my own teeth in. The spring clearing, not cleaning, the spring clearing. Springtime on the ranch is just around the bend. You'll get your nose cleared. We have cows and pigs. The thaw brings forth chores that smell and offend. Rubber boots and gloves are now our new digs. As the snow melts, we're left with a moat. Springtime is here with its bag full of trick. It's sour and slick, so just clear your throat. The thistles now grow, so watch out for the pricks. The air never smells like sugar and spice. Out in the birch, there grows fly agaric. It deters the skunk encrusted with lice. This mushroom will make all feel lethargic. A blend of toadstool and garlic, I'm told, will stop puffy butts from reaching our fold. <laughs> um, I came across it when I was looking at, um, when I was just doing some stuff around the spring because I wanted to bring something of, of, of that to Poetry Corner. And it just struck me as a really odd little poem. It's written by an American, um, hence some of the references. But I just loved it. Um, so I thought I'd just uh, plonk that in tonight for your no, it is delectation. Lovely. It's got some great rhymes in it. It has, hasn't it? Um, right. Well, I brought uh, a poem I found on Instagram, which you would perhaps think is not the first place you'd look for poetry. Yeah. But I follow a few poets on Instagram. Um, and often they do little videos of them reciting poems. So here's one by the poet Raina Del Cid. Whether that's her real name or just her Instagram handle, I couldn't tell you. Um, but she saw a scientist um, on in online answering the question, what was before the Big Bang? Right. And his answer was, before the Big Bang, there was no up, there was no down, there was no side to side. And she took that and she's written this poem called Before the Big Bang. There was no up, there was no down, there was no side to side. 
There was no light, there was no dark, nor shape of any kind. There were no stars or planet Mars or protons to collide. There was no up, there was no down, there was no side to side. And furthermore, to this total lacking state, there was no here, there was no there, because there was no space. And in this endless void, which can be thought of as a place, there was no time and so no passing minutes, hours, days. Of all the paradoxes that belabor common sense, I think this one's the greatest, this time before events. It's how did we get from nothing to infinitely dense, from immeasurably small to inconceivably immense? But before we get unmoored from the question at the start, let's take a breath and marvel at when math becomes an art. Because we don't have to understand it to know there was a time when there was no up, there was no down, there was no side to side. Mm. Oh, that's a curious little poem. Yeah, and again, something that I happened across online when I was doing some research, and I just really, really enjoyed. Mm. Um, And, you know, being a bit of a a mathematician myself, uh, I really enjoyed that bit about the whole, you know, let's take a breath and marvel at when math becomes an art. Mm. Because... As I'm forever telling math students that I work with, um, it is an art. Maths is a language. Mm. And, and that's, I think that's where we go wrong in the way we teach it in the UK. We teach it as these little discrete parcels of method mm. and not this wonderful language that talks to all the other parts of its own language and it can be used to create the greatest of artworks, including the most amazing pieces of music. It's all mathematical play. Mm. Anyway, before I get far too geeky, let's walk <laughs> away from Poetry Corner. Fair enough. Uh, but no, thank you for your uh, your poem and thank you for listening to mine. I really, uh, really enjoyed those two. So, um, lessons in chemistry. Now, here was a book that for you and I, we'd kind of seen everywhere for a while, hadn't we? Yes, we have, yeah. It kept crossing our paths in one way, shape or form. So we took that as a sign from the universe and went ahead and grabbed it by the horns and bought it to read, didn't we? Yeah, yeah, we did. Now, it's got, well, it's got plaudits and it's got plaudits on top of plaudits, doesn't it? If you read the front and the quotes on the front and the quotes on the back. Yeah. You know, it's quite clear this is this is this is going to be an absolutely phenomenal read that's just riveting. You're never gonna to want to put it down, it's gonna keep you going forever. Yeah. So is that what you found, Wendy? No. Oh <laughs> no, it isn't. I mean oh. if you if you read a lot of it, you know, people talk about um how absolutely unput downable it is. Uh, it's very funny, full of humour. Um, somebody said, you know, laugh out loud. God, I'm, I'm really struggling to find anything that brings just a glimmer of humour to me. Um, I think it's really clunky in terms of the way it's written. Um, and, and and almost, uh, I really struggled to get past, you know, chapter three. 
Um, really? Yeah, I did. I did. Um, there's something about it that just didn't gel for me. Um, I, I don't have any affinity with the characters. Um, there was just... I thought I'd have a greater affinity with her because she is a woman out of her time. If you read the book, you know, it's in, set in the 50s, 60s. And essentially, she's um, she's a chemist and, and quite a brilliant academic. Um, and whilst she has to put up with a lot of that um, uh, discrimination and a lot of that, the sexism and stuff, um, she just doesn't, I don't know, she just doesn't make a mark on me at all. I, I was really surprised. I wanted to have an affinity with her. I wanted her, because she is very bright, I wanted her to be wittier, I wanted her to be funnier. Um, but I just felt a bit let down. Now, recognising we haven't finished the book yet, um, I don't know whether that will change as we go on, but the opening chapters have done absolutely nothing for me in terms of making me think, oh, I can't put this book down. Well, fear not, dear listener. <laughs> Because my experience has been quite the opposite. Right. So when I picked it up and started reading, I couldn't put this down. I was giggling out loud. I was finding it amusing and funny. I was associating with her and with uh, her love interest in the book. I, I was recognising these people. I was finding them amusing. I, I, I was like, yeah, no, this is funny. I get this. So, clearly, has a different effect on you and I. Give me an example of 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 a bit that you that one of the situations that you found funny. So, when she goes into his laboratory and says, "I'm here for the beakers," yeah, I was giggling, giggling. I was absolutely giggling away at myself because it's just an absolute. Well, no, I'm here for the beakers. You have more beakers than you want. There's a surface beakers. I need beakers. I'm taking the beakers. And everyone else is, and, and he, he's like, but but you cannot, they're my beakers. <laughs> You're not using them. You don't need them. You have a surface of beakers. I've got a form here filled in that says you've got too many beakers and I can have some of your beakers. I'm taking the beakers. And it's the way she sees the world as so crisply black and white. Mm. Here is logic. This is how logic works. Why are you being illogical? And I don't know. I suppose there is something about me that sees the world in that same way. I I see things very clearly. There are you know, and I, and quite often I find myself annoyed at the fact that other people can't see the world as simply as I do. Okay, I um. I'm just going to ask this, and I don't mean anything by it, and if I have to do the repair work later, I will go back and do it. But I am wondering then, Jim, would you would you consider yourself to be somewhere on a spectrum? You know what I mean by I'm that? Currently, I'm actually currently undergoing a diagnosis. Okay, okay. So, um, it, so that makes then sense to me, because I think that a lot of the books I've read recently certainly within the last 12 months probably have all got characters that are somewhere on a spectrum well we're all we're all 
everybody is on that spectrum. I think... Okay. Near the, one end or the other, then. So, yeah. So, yeah. And, and I think so at the books... moment, at the moment, we live in a world where, because... And, yeah, let's be blunt, we're talking about the autistic spectrum. Yeah. Um, because the world is has become better at diagnosing autism, because the world has become more accepting of people who have autism, mm-hmm. and because the world no longer sees people who have autism as necessarily all being the same. And I think as well, part of the, the, the mental health revolution, the fact that, you know, 20 years ago, if you mentioned mental health, people were looking at you like, mm, yeah, I've, I've heard about it. What, what exactly? Because even only 20 years ago, mental health was only just starting to become a thing that people talked about. And now, 20 years later, people have come along with mental health and we're now looking at, well, what's the cause of mental health? What's the issues here? And actually, for I think for a lot of people who have been living as high-functioning people on the autistic spectrum, the problem that creates their mental health in a, it causes them to have bad mental health or poor mental health can be the frustration of not being able to get the world to work the way it should in their head mm. or not, or through having to mask their behaviour. Mm. Um, so, I, it, I mean, does art reflect reality or reality reflect art? It's, and I think certainly within writing, there perhaps is a move towards being more accepting of autistic characters. I think it's except for me. It's not about acceptance. It's but it's about the way it's written. It almost makes it the norm. Yeah. So I just love to read a book where there are people who are not on a spectrum or who don't have particular ways of doing things. Not that I don't think you should read about it because I do, but it just seems that the trend is that everything is like that. And that doesn't make it a trend then, because it's skewing it out of proportion. For me, life is a melting pot, and it's about the blend of people. And there's no two ways about it. Those spectrums, you're right, Jim, those spectrums have got people all along them. But I seem to be only reading about the two extremities. I don't seem to be reading much that describes the middle ground. Now, I understand the reasons for that, if people are going to learn about it, people are going to become more accepting of it. It has to be, oh, I hate this phrase, but it has to be sort of normalised. Do you know what I mean by that? Yeah. It has to be bought into people's eyelines so that they can look at it. And, but it just seems that everything I'm picking up has got a main character who is on a spectrum of some sort. And, and, and that's not my experience of life, I suppose. But is that possibly because those people aren't displaying where they are on that spectrum? Well, it could be. But in I your just, experience. The danger is that if you read this book, this, the, by inference, you could think that in order to be a highly intelligent woman who is completely out of her time in terms of her capability and her aspiration and her ambition, 
you have to be on a spectrum of some sort. Well, that's just nonsense. Well, no, you see, now, I wouldn't get that. Oh, that's what I got from it. I would more say that to not accept the way the world is behaving around her, she needs to be on that spectrum. Because I'll give you a prime example. In in one of the early chapters, we get them having lunch at yes. um in, in the canti- the laboratory canteen. Um and in that bit um we get a group of geologists sat having lunch. Mm. And one of the secretaries from their department comes and joins them for lunch. And they say, oh, come and join us at your own risk. We're watching the, the happy couple, which are these two um, characters who are our main protagonist and her partner. Um, and the secretary says, uh, I've got it here. I'm a specialist in human behaviour, she said. At one point, I was pursuing a PhD in psychology. She looked at her lunchmates, hoping they'd ask about her academic aspirations. But no one seemed even slightly interested. Anyway, that's why I can say with confidence, it's she who's using him. Mm. And actually, that's very small observation by this lady who's accepted a lot at becoming a secretary because she's been... You know, despite the fact that at one point she was pursuing a PhD in psychology, mm. she's ended up as a secretary in a chemistry laboratory or, or a geology laboratory, I think she would have worked in. But anyway, the point being that she's accepted the role that society thought suitable. Yes. And actually, I don't think you need to be... Um, on that spectrum to be super at a science or to be an excellent woman or to be an outstanding woman. But maybe you need to be on that spectrum in this time and place to refuse to accept the norm that you're being given. You see, I don't, I don't agree with that. I just, I just think that there are, there are strong women who are just strong women, and it doesn't matter what time or place or what conditions you put them in, they'll rise to the top regardless. Yeah, no, and, think... and, and there have been. However, yeah. in this character's... I mean, it, it's not clear from the book whether she is or isn't on a spectrum, but she definitely sees the world with a... Oh, I think it is, Jim. ..with a black and whiteness that the, the people who are on that spectrum at the high end, you know, enjoy and like. But, you know, if I take you back to one of the bits that I found uh, amusing. Um, they first met, or rather exchanged words, on a Tuesday morning at Hastings Research Institute, the sunny Southern Californian private research lab where Calvin, having graduated from Cambridge with a PhD in record time and with 43 employment offers to weigh, accepted the position partly because of reputation, but mostly because of precipitation. It didn't rain much in Commons. Elizabeth, on the other hand, accepted Hastings' offer because it was the only one she received. As she stood outside Calvin Evans' lab, she noted a number of large warning signs. Do not enter. Experiment in progress. No admittance. Keep out. Then she opened the door. 
Hello, she called over Frank Sinatra, who was blasting from a hi-fi that sat incongruously in the middle of the room. I need to speak to whoever is in charge. Calvin, surprised to hear a voice, poked his head out from behind a large centrifuge. Excuse me, miss, he called, irritated, a large pair of goggles shielding his eyes from whatever was bubbling off to his right. But this area is off limits. Didn't you see the signs? I did. Elizabeth yelled back, ignoring his tone. She made her way across the lab to switch off the music. There, now we can hear each other. Calvin chewed his lips and pointed. You can't be in here, he said. The signs. Yes. Well, I was told that your lab has a surplus of beakers. And we're short downstairs. It's all here, she said, thrusting a piece of paper at him. It's been cleared by the inventory manager. I didn't hear anything about it, Calvin said, examining the paper. And I'm sorry, but no. I need every beaker. Maybe I'd better speak with a chemist down there. You tell your boss to call me. He turned back to his work, flipping the hi-fi back on as he did. Elizabeth didn't move. You want to speak to a chemist? Someone other than me? She yelled over Frank. Yes, he answered. And then he softened slightly. Look, I know it's not your fault, but they shouldn't send a secretary up to here to do their dirty work. Now, I know this might be hard for you to understand, but I'm in the middle of something important. Please, just tell your boss to call me. Elizabeth's eyes narrowed. She did not care for people who made assumptions based on what she felt were long, outdated visual cues, clues. And she also didn't care for men who believed, even if she had been a secretary, that being a secretary meant she was incapable of understanding words beyond type this up in triplicate. What a coincidence, she shouted. She went straight over to a shelf and helped herself to a large box of beakers. I'm busy too. Then she marched out. Now, I found that scene really entertaining. Mm. Um, and when I read it for the first time, I was giggling to myself. It had me giggling. I loved the way she saw the situation. And love the way that she went, well, look, my work's important. I need these. Don't stand in my way. I'm going to get things done for myself. And I, I, I love that about her. Now, it should be said um, that this book does require trigger warnings. Um, are there trigger warnings on it, Jim? I, I didn't look at that. There aren't. I've not seen any. Uh, and certainly not too far into the book at all, you come across an instance where Elizabeth, the main character, in her earlier career, is a victim of sexual assault. Yeah. Um, and for me, I wasn't expecting that to come in, and I wasn't expecting it to be as graphic as it was. And it hit me like a well-aimed brick to the temple. Yeah. And I found it very uncomfortable to read. I found it very disturbing. And even though it doesn't go into any great graphic detail, there is a small amount of graphic detail, but not great. Um, I, f I f It really made me, no, don't like this. Blah, put it down. And then... I went back to it and carried on reading, and the gravity of it really hit me. And reading it as a man, obviously I've not been subject to that sex discrimination, that gender mm. discrimination that other people, women mainly, have. And 
I think I I know it's not every woman's experience of the world, but there are a lot of women, certainly, who have experienced that treatment. There are a lot of women who, in that time era, definitely experienced that treatment. And I, I found it very, it was a hard wake-up call of, yeah, no, this book is funny. This book is amusing, but it's making a very serious point. Yeah, and and I, I get that because it just from the bit that I've written, that I've read so far, um, for me, what she's describing isn't just about societal stereotypes or whatever. What she's describing in this story is is the balance of power because sexual assault is never about sex. It's, it's always about power. It's about who exerts power over who. And and the scene that you describe in the book, the sexual assault, is absolutely about power. Yeah. That he, the perpetrator, needs to put her in place, and that's the quickest way to do it. And he knows because of his circumstance and that because he's a well-respected academic, male academic, he knows he's going to be believed. Yeah, yeah. He He knows he's going to get away with it. You know, just before the assault, he says to her, anybody else still here? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. He check, he's checking the coast. It's clear. Yeah. Am I right yeah. to do this? Yeah. Now, she does get, she does, uh, <laughs> she doesn't get away scot-free. She doesn't, you know, she is assaulted, but she does. She fights back. Attack and she does fight back. And mm-hmm. I was pleased she did. But again, even in that instance where, the police officer refuses to accept the seriousness of her claim. Mm. That in itself is, you know, symptomatic of the system we live in. Of the system we used to live in, and I'm not saying it doesn't happen now, but the reason it's so shocking is that some of the descriptions, so, for example, she asks the police officer who is called, on, on two occasions she says... Actually, I'm injured, I need a doctor, and he ignores her. Yeah. He skates over that. Now, you know, I'm not saying it would never happen here, but it's less likely to happen now. I think women are treated yes. somewhat differently. We're not, we're not, not saying still in perfect. the 60s or the 50s. No, that it, no. We, have, we have progressed. Yeah, we have. However, equality still has not been reached. No, oh, no, no, absolutely not. But but the the question is, it probably, you know, <laughs> it's a moving target, isn't it? So we have made steps forward. We still need to make steps forward, and that will always be the case because it is a moving target. But for me, I suppose really, and and this is indicative of its era. You know, it is it is in the um it is in the fifties. So you would expect some of that stuff. Um. I suppose, Reid, I, I do wonder whether I've just come to this book at the wrong time for me. Um, hey, the time of when you read something is very important. Hmm. Where you are in terms of your own mental head, headspace and also your life experience. But all, I think, importantly, what you've read around it. Yeah. Hmm. 
you know, if you've read a lot of books that all make the same point, does it start to lose its edge? And I suppose I, I suppose that's what I'm wondering about, really. So, um, so for me, um, I suppose I'm I'm getting a bit fed up of of the the lengthy monologues about social issues and about women's rights and about mental health and about I'm just I'm getting to that point of saturation I think Jim now I know that's because I read a lot and 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 I read all sorts of stuff so I'm reading fiction and I'm reading non-fiction I'm you know I'm reading government reports and so I do I, I am reading an awful lot but I'm just wondering whether I've I've got to the stage where I'm just saturated this stuff and a bit fed up with it no, indeed. And certainly, I mean, at the weekend, uh, I met up with a friend I haven't seen in ages. And she works in the uh, judicial system mm. as a civil servant. And um, she used to read a lot of things that dealt with these kind of topics. So I knew what she used to read. And I said, so I've just read a book, that, uh, Notes on Execution, I think you'd find really interesting. And I was telling her about it. She said, you're right. It's exactly the sort of thing I would find interesting. However, I've had to stop reading things like that. Mm. And she's gone back to P.D. James's. Yeah, yeah. Because what she wants is that escapism. Yes, that's absolutely. Through her reading. That's absolutely it. And I can understand why people would come into this stuff for the first time where they would feel elated by reading it because they, you know, they they do want to they do want that shock factor. They do want to be put in a position where they question whether this stuff is right and why it's not right and and about how people challenged it. And I get that, but for me, I'm just sick about. It feels like I've been beaten about the head with it enough. Mm. So, would you say? In terms of the writing style, I'm finding it a very easy read. I'm not finding it challenging yeah. in terms of its writing style. Yeah, um, I'm finding it entertaining. It's well-written, in my opinion. Um, so it's it's not necessarily that it's badly written. It's just that maybe you've had you've read so many of this this. Is it a genre? It's not really a genre, but you get my drift. You've, you've dealing with so- these, it's dealing with the same social issues, I think. Yeah. I've read so much dealing with the same social issues. I'm just a bit, I, I've got a bit of, you know, I've got a bit of woke fatigue, I think. Well, I wonder how next week's book will suit you then. <laughs> um, I think next week's book should be a refreshing change. Anyway, let us, before we go any further, take a quick wander over to see what Granny's read. Okie doke, then. So Granny has, uh, she's been away dog-sitting this weekend. All right. So she's read three books. (laughs) Of course. Uh, So now, I I took Gran out the other day. I got to call at the pharmacy to pick up a prescription. So I parked in the car park, and just outside where I park, there's a Bernardo's. Mm. And they'd got a lovely display of books in their Bernardo's window. Mm. So when I went to fetch my prescription, off Granny toddled and came back with an armful. (laughs) As you do. 
Yes, very very reasonable prices, but yeah, she came out with an eyeful. So from that selection, she's read Peter Swanson's The Kind Worth Killing. Oh. Which is uh from a it's a Sunday Times top ten bestseller, apparently. Um there's no such thing as the perfect stranger. With his flight delayed, Ted Severson meets Lily Kintner, a magnetic stranger in an airport bar. After too many martinis, he confesses his darkest secrets about his wife's infidelity and how he wishes her dead. Without missing a beat, Lily offers to help him carry out the task. Mm. So she's thoroughly enjoyed that. Um, then she's read Hilary Bonner's The Cruelest Game, and that's very tragic, I think. I mean, if you, I'll read you the back. Marion Anderson lives the perfect life. She has a beautiful home, a handsome and loving husband, and an intelligent and caring son. But as easily as perfect lives are built, they can also be demolished. When tragedy strikes at the heart of her family, Marion finds herself in the middle of a nightmare with no sign of waking up. The life she treasured is disintegrating before her very eyes. But it's just the beginning of something much worse and altogether more deadly. Mm-hmm. And then, and the one she enjoyed most... Um, this week, and the one that she's always said to me, it's one of a series, you know. <laughs> so, by Linwood Barclay. Oh, yes, I like Linwood Barclay. Yeah, she's a big Linwood Barclay fan. Take Your Breath Away. Oh, I've not come across that one, Jim. Yeah, it says on the front, a missing woman, a husband suspected, the truth will take your breath away. <laughs> um. So it's always the husband, isn't it? When his wife, Bree, vanishes from their home one night, never to be seen again, people assume Andy got away with murder. The police can't build a case against him, but still his friends and neighbours abandon him. Six years later, Andy's life is back on track, and he's settled with a new girlfriend. And when he hears his old house has been bulldozed and rebuilt, he's not bothered. Things are good. But then one day, a woman who looks like Bree shows up at their old address, screaming... Where's my house? What's happened to my house? Before vanishing as quickly as she appeared. As dark suspicions resurface, and his future depends on discovering what the hell is going on. The trick is staying alive long enough to find out. Mm. With that kind of threat, it strikes me a little bit of a Stuart, Mc, of a Stuart McBride. Yeah, yeah. Sounds remember. good. Often wonder how his protagonist managed to make it to the end of a book. <laughs> uh, alive, if not in one piece. Um, so, yeah, she's read those. She's thoroughly enjoyed them. And, well, she's on something else now. She's got another couple lined up anyway. So, yes. Um, so that's what Granny's read this week, ladies and gents. Now, um, let's, because we're a little bit short on time, we talked for quite a long time about like, uh, lessons in chemistry. Tell me, Wendy, what's caught your eye this week? Right. Well, I've been doing a lot of non-fiction. Uh, well, I, lo- I love non-fiction. And um, there have been a couple of books that have been sort of on my radar for a while. Um, and I I read one of them a long time ago um, and never really, I, I haven't revisited it for a while. Um, but... Um, the other one, I, I, it's been on my radar, but I haven't read it at all. Um, the first one is called Atomic Habits, um, and it's a um, it's a non-fiction book um, that really is about 
how to break some of the bad habits that uh, that create inefficiency in people um, and and create new, better habits. Double handling. So, yeah, you know. It's, I hate double handling. It's something loads of people do all the time. It really bugs me. And it's that, isn't it? And we all know. But but the the premise of the book really is that you can make tiny changes and those tiny changes give you remarkable results. Um, and I've had the reason it's on my list is that I've seen it from afar, but I've had four people recommend it um, recently. And Stephen Bartlett was one of them. So I thought, Do you know what, I'm going to have to go and have a look at that. And uh, so I have. And then I mentioned um, last week a book called uh, Seduction by Robert Green. And um, which I had read before, um, but I then wanted to go back and read the first one that I read of his called Power. Um, and it's written in the same way um, where he takes famous figures and he talks about um, the laws of power and and how it functions. And um, and so I've bought, I've rebought a copy because I don't know what happened to my old one, but I've rebought a copy of that to to go through. And and strangely enough, it it sort of right, reading this book about lessons in chemistry has triggered me to want to go and read that because I am intrigued by the power dynamic between men and women, between social injustices. And all of that sort of stuff. What sits at the bottom of all of that is power. And I just thought, do you know what? I ought to go back. It's the uh, and and have another read. It's the Forty Eight Laws of Power. The book. Is the have you? And this is completely going to be left field for you, possibly. But have you ever read the Celestine Prophecy? Yes. Because hippie stuff, as lots of people would describe it. Yeah. However, the uh, the power struggles, the control dramas that it talks about, are very much about that power struggle, that power conflict. Yeah, yeah, um, I'd agree with that. Yeah. Um, so, well, do you know, it's funny that non-friction, non-friction, non-fiction has non-friction, been the thing. Yeah. Yeah. It. Yeah. We love a good slippery book. No. Um, non-fiction has has been your. Uh, Excuse me, your muse this week because equally for me, non-fiction's been the one that's reached out to me. Oh, that's strange. And I think it's come out of last week's book and this week's book, right? And also a podcast that I've been listening to recently. So I've recently discovered from recommendation by Emily, our own Emily, who sometimes is on the show, discovered a podcast called "You're Dead to Me," which. It was written by and presented by um, the public historian behind Horrible Histories. That oh, great, my God. Yes. yes. But it's for adults. So it's, a, it, it's taking well-known or lesser well-known, that perhaps should be well-known, uh, moments from history and reteaching them in a more palatable sense than maybe school does, or looking at things that have been exempted from the school curriculum at all, completely, to take you to have a look at things. Now, in that last week, we read notes on an execution, and we were learning about the world of a serial killer through the women that survived him. 
Um, this week, lessons in chemistry, where Elizabeth Zott is struck by the in, in, the terrible uh, injustices of the patriarchy. And then, on a couple of episodes of um, You're Dead to Me, it, it's looked at women from the medieval period who've really been completely sidelined or rewritten mm. because of when they were. So then this book sprang out at me from a list of suggested books um, by Waterstones. I get I get an email every day, I think, now from Waterstones saying, have you looked at this one? Uh, and this one's called Femina by Janina Ramirez. And it's a non-fiction book, and it's called, uh, its subtitle under Femina is A New History of the Middle Ages Through the Women Written Out of It. Mm. And this is, a, this is one of the things that really strikes me as phenomenally significant and important is, is you know, history is written by the victor. Mm. And quite often, significant women in history. Now, don't get me wrong, there are some very significant women in history who feature strongly. Our own Queen Elizabeth I, definitely. Her sister, Bloody Mary, as well. Mm. But there are other magnificently powerful and influential um, women from history who've been completely disregarded. Mm. Eleanor of Aquitaine. You know, the, the significant women who've played a significant role in the politics and history of the world that has shaped the world we live in, who were written into the sidelines. So this this book just grabbed me and I was like, oh, this this intrigues me. Um, let me tell you what, how Waterstones describes it. Waterstones say, it's giving voice to the influential women of the Middle Ages who have been silenced by male gatekeepers. Ramirez's sweeping account not only highlights some justly forgotten pioneers, but also demonstrates how easily historical narratives can be manipulated. Mm. So, I mean, possibly on the verge of being too woke but also at the same time significantly important well no i'd agree with that because in a way that's what i've been talking about isn't it if you look at some of the great dynasties of that time if you look at the the medicis or you look at the borgias um you know in, incredibly powerful family di- dynasties where the women very often <laughs> were, were stronger and more powerful and far more influential than the men were Certainly, if you look at the Borgias, mm. when the Pope went and left the Vatican because he got to go and do work elsewhere, who did he leave in charge? Mm. Not Cesare, mm. Lucrezia. Lucrezia was left to run the Vatican. You know, and uh, it's it sort of, if you think about it, almost bordering on heresy at that time. Yeah. So but, yeah, yeah. If the job was to be done properly, exactly. are you going? You're not going to entrust it to his power mad, lascivious, idiot bro- son. <laughs> you know, it was the daughter who was the one that would get things done. Absolutely. 
Yeah, you see, I that that feels more well balanced to me. Well, I might, uh, yeah, I might mosey on over to that and have a look at it then, Jim. Oh, it certainly, it strikes me as, you know, a, a cert- I certainly feel when I look at history and when I look at the way that um, the church uh, or faith uh, in the, its many forms, because uh, I don't think any of them are particularly feminist, are they? Um, or even equalitarian. Um you know the way the 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 patriarchy and indeed the religious patriarchy have suppressed the history of women mm. is a massive crime. Right, we are approaching the end of our time, so I'm looking forward to lessons in chemistry next week, concluding it with you. Yes, and me. Seeing where we end up with Elizabeth. I hope that it's. I hope that it improves for you, Andy. Mm. I hope that for me it stays at least as good as it is. <laughs> good, good. Well, yeah, I shall look forward to seeing how it ends. So, ladies and gents, until next week when we will be concluding lessons in chemistry. Good reading. Good reading, everybody. <laughs> This show is part of Microbrew Radio, Burton on Trent's community radio station. You can hear this and plenty of other shows over on microbrewradio.com. Find our app on the iOS or Android stores, or just say Alexa, play Microbrew Radio. And if you like what you hear, please let us know on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. Thanks.